going on. Um, today we're looking at Zechariah 9 through 14. I just need to give you a, a little backdrop. Um, last week we looked at Zechariah 1 through 8, but most scholars believe 9 through 14 is a different author. It's a different situation. It's probably sometime in the middle of the 5th century, the 400s BCE, which is a very momentous century. If you remember your ancient history, it's uh, the Greeks and the Persians are doing a lot of fighting. And uh, Palestine is the crossroads between these great empires, although they're never quite directly involved. So the Battle of Marathon, uh, the Battle of the 300, the Offaly Pass happens during this time, the Siege of Rhodes. So it's a very tumultuous time. And that, that tumult is reflected in 9 through 14. So sometimes I may refer to it as second Zechariah. The other thing about it is, am I echoing or is that just me that hears echo? A little echo. Okay, it's not just my hearing. Okay, just okay. Because <laughs> I never know. It might just be me, right? Going. But um, these prophecies are actually two oracles. That, and the third oracle is actually Malachi. I'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And they're, they're kind of obscure. They're, they're very almost apocalyptic. And so it's hard to say exactly when they happen. And partially because they're obscure and, and they're unfulfilled, uh, later on in both the Jewish tradition and in the early Christian tradition, these passages take on very important and different meanings. Um, the book of Zechariah is quoted 30 times in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It's quoted 27 times in the Gospels. Um, so this week I've been working with this text. So I, the text in front of you is not the same as I'm going to read. I'm going to read part of that, but I'm going to go back in chapter 10. So I encourage you to listen. You can open your Bibles and follow along, but I'm going to be reading excerpts uh, from chapter 10 and then chapter 13. So listen to the word of God. I'm beginning in chapter 10 of Zechariah. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his proud war horse. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as numerous as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and they shall rear their children and return. And then chapter 13. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove the land of the prophets and the unclean spirit, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, says the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, but one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, in the midst of the many words, both within and without us, may your unchanging word help us 
encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night of January 5th, 1944, Dwight David Ives and our General Dwight David Ives and our gathered as generals, he says, I don't like it, the weather's bad, but we have to go. And there's an iconic picture of him meeting with British and American paratroopers uh, the night before. By the way, only half of them will be alive 24 hours later. And he told his driver as he left those young men that he knew he was sending to peril, I hope to God I'm right. And he wrote a note uh, that night, and it went like this. Our landing in Sherbong Hava area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold. And I have drawn the troops, Eisenhower wrote. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion duty they could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. So that's what Eisenhower was prepared to release if D-Day had been unsuccessful. Of course, we know how history turns out. You know, it's hard to find that kind of leadership anymore. The truth is that kind of leadership is rare in any age. The crisis of leadership is very much a theme in our current times, but it's not a new one. Let's take up the American presidents, for instance, and most historians actually agree with this. There's a consensus that we've only had three great presidents, Lincoln, FDR in Washington, in whatever order you want to put them. And there's a general consensus, consensus that about another 15 of them were good to average. Okay? Dwight Eisenhower has been kind of reassessed. He, he makes it to good or above average, right? So that means, not counting our current president, we'll give him a pass, he's not done yet. 26 of our presidents, over half, have been anywhere from average to disasters. My point is, great leadership is rare. It's more rare than we would like to think. Or, unfortunately, it's more rare than we need. And bad leadership has horrific and often fatal consequences. We see it in our own history. We see it in world history. And it is a reoccurring theme in holy history as well. Now, over the last few weeks, through the words of Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 8, we have talked a lot about how the returned exiles, those who came back from Babylon to reestablish the people in the land, had faced the task of rebuilding both a temple and a city in the ruins. And part of the task in front of them was how do you move forward as a restored people of God? How do you make sense of what has happened in the past, of how we got here, in order that we could know the best way forward? And this was not only the concerners and followers of Adonai that were located in Judea, but it was a conversation that was going on throughout the diaspora. We have correspondence from folks, from Jews in Egypt, and beyond the Persian Empire, throughout the whole realm of the Persian Empire. What does it mean to go forward as the people of God? 
Zechariah 9 4, through 14, it's a series of visions and oracles that alternate between this idea of judgment, these horrific scenes of worldwide judgment, as well as a hope for God's salvation and a restoration of the land for all the children of Israel. Now, we spoke last week um, that how the prophetic tradition borrows from each other. And certainly Zechariah is in dialogue with Ezekiel. There's a lot of Ezekiel that shows up in Zechariah and is reworked. But from Micah, from one of the earliest prophets to Jeremiah, the prophets had railed against the failure of Israel's political and religious leadership to lead the people in a godly and just way. Jeremiah said, the priest do not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. In other words, everybody that was supposed to lead the people failed. From the king, to the priest, to the prophets, to the interpreters of the law. The prophets clearly lay significant blame for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the loss of land, the ending of the Davidic kingship on its leaders, on the bad shepherds, both the religious and particularly the political leaders. But it's equally clear that the people went along with their leaders and suffered the consequences. The problem of bad shepherds, whether they be political or religious, whether it be in history in the past or the present, whether it be local or international, was a very present concern with those trying to rebuild a city and a life. It was a concern about those who were trying to renew faith, and it's certainly a problem that we face politically, socially, and religiously in 2023. I know our politicians fail us by lots of different reasons. Corrupting forces of money, media, foreign, foreign adversaries. But ultimately, where do you lay the blame for the state of our country? I'm gonna use my mother of blessed memory as an example. Now my mother always had strong opinions about politics. None of them necessarily based on any facts. <laughs> but she held, her, she held her convictions strongly and was very, uh, would tell you about them even if you didn't ask. And this didn't change after she had dementia. Okay. And after my dad died, we moved her closer to me and she was at our house a lot. And uh, my third son and I were cooking dinner for her one night and, and TV, the TV was on. <clears throat> and our former president was, was speaking at a rally. And my mother was yelling at the television. And she said, how could this be going on in our country? And I was biting my lip. She goes, who in the world voted for this guy? Well, I looked at her. And I was tempted to say what I knew was true. Um, and my son was watching me with a smile on his face. And I said, 63 million people did, Mom. Well, I can't believe that happened. And she said, I'm sure glad I didn't. And I'm going, oh my goodness. Thank God. See, there's some benefits of dementia, right? <laughs> 
But I think we're all a bit like my mom. And she had an excuse. We don't. I was talking to someone this week about another pastor in a church in a conflicted situation, not in the UCC and not around here. And it's amazing to me how easy we affix blame. Well, but the history of the world is scapegoating, right? We're always looking for a people or a person to blame. And this young pastor made plenty of rookie mistakes, but he became vilified by this church. And the seasoned pastors around him, as well as the mature leadership in his own church, failed as well. And he has resigned. Bad leadership almost always is a function of something wrong with a society or an organization. The idolatry of the kings of Israel was as much a function of the piety of the people as their own attempts to maintain political power. The problems of leadership in this country are bipartisan, and they are, ish they are rooted in we, the people. The decline of institutional religion in this country is not just the clergy, though trust me, my, my profession has done plenty wrong, but it's also a reflection of what's lacking both within the walls of our churches and what's wrong with the hearts and minds of people out there. This world is an unsettled place. It was a very unsettled place in Judea, in the 400s BCE as well. But I think the doorway to all things in the kingdom of God is the same now as it was then. Humility. Whether that means bearing our brothers and sisters' burdens, whether it's seeking grace and mercy for yourself, or having a healthy suspicion about your own motives and positions. Ultimately, humility is saying God is God and we are not. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, that doesn't necessarily change the world, but it certainly changes how we move in it. And from the calling of Abraham to the planning of that little community in Jerusalem after the resurrection, the vision of influence has always been people being faithful in the world, showing the world there is a God who cares. Zechariah is in the midst of violent men trying to conquer each other. And he's living in the legacy of ruin caused by false prophets and self-centered tyrants. But he envisioned a time when God would be the shepherd. He says, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. We believe that was fulfilled in part by the coming of Jesus, who modeled a radically different approach to power and leadership. We are followers of the one who called himself the Good Shepherd. We also believe the Good Shepherd was crucified by the sword of the state in solidarity with all who suffer 
with the brokenness of this world. There's a legend where St. Martin, St. Martin of Tours, um, was praying, and Satan showed up in the guise of Christ. But St. Martin was not fooled. He said, where are your scars? Tomas Halik, the great Czech theologian, who knows something about tyranny, having had to be um, ordained as an underground priest during the Soviet period, says this, my God is a wounded God. The painful wounds of our world are Christ's wounds. If we ignore pain, poverty, and suffering in our world, if we turn a blind eye to them out of indifference or cowardice, if we are unwilling to acknowledge the injuries we inflict, we inflict, including the injuries inflicted by our churches. And instead of concealing them from others and ourselves, but being honest and repentant, unless we do that, we have no right to call ourselves the people of God. So my youngest son became a father this morning. And probably there's no more important shepherd job I've ever had than being a dad. It's still the best job I ever had. Um, and I remember bringing my firstborn, his oldest brother, home. And I'm just full of joy and terror, you know? Because <laughs> like, they just, they let you take them home. You know, you're, so you're at home and everybody leaves and you're holding and, I, and, I, and I'm And I'm sitting there and I'm holding him and almost simultaneously, he throws up and he poops all out of his diaper all over me. I think true leadership is embracing all the messiness of this world. It's not the only part of being a shepherd or a dad or a leader or a pastor or a politician. But unless we embrace the woundedness and messiness of this world, we have no right to try to encourage people to a better way. Until we look at our own souls and deal with our own self-centeredness, then how can we heal the world, right? The good news is that our ultimate hope lies not only in trusting in the good and wounded shepherd, but by serving and following and leading in ways that not only seek to heal the world, but heal our own souls as well. Zachariah had a vision when God himself would clean up this mess that all these humans had made. That is a vision that is still our call and our reason for being here. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. I invite you to stand, and as we say together what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit.
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He ascended into hell. The first day into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to continue your worship by giving the God your gifts, your tithes, and your offerings. 